Choir makes their way down. We'll get our Bibles out and open to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 23, the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel 23. Uh, you'll find that on page 380 on that hardback pew Bible in front of you there in the pew rack. So if you can get your iPad, iPhone, electronic gadget out, or you can uh, just get your trusty sword out open to 2 Samuel 23. We are going to look at a couple passages this morning from the life of David that I believe will be very instructive for us as we uh, consider what the Lord has got before us. I want you to begin this morning by just thinking a little bit about the the irresistible, the, the irresistible nature and character of Jesus. That when we think about how Jesus was, as uh, the Bible teaches us through the Gospels, uh, we see people who are just drawn to Him. They cannot get enough of Him. They flock to Him. They're they're amazed by His teaching and by His words. They uh, they are uh, the needy, the hurting, the broken. Just uh, the people that seemingly uh, would be rejected by uh, society as a whole were the people who just came around Jesus and were willing to give up everything for Jesus. And it just is amazing how irresistible he was to those who were considered to be sinners or uh, the outcasts, the, the rejected people. And so now we, as New Testament believers, are uh, sort of in a position where uh, the Bible has called us to be the hands and feet of Jesus to this lost and dying world, which is an extraordinary task. Because uh, when I look at uh, Jesus and the way the world responds to him, and then I think, well now, Lord... Is that the way the world is supposed to respond to me? I mean, you know, that, that's a tall order. Jesus is God. I can't be God. And I can never live up to that standard. Nor can you. But we are called to be His hands and His feet, to represent Him on this earth. So now how is it that people like me and people like you are going to look like Him? Now, what chance do we have of being irresistible to the world around us? And I would say to you, the only chance that we have is together. The only chance I have of uh, even coming close to reflecting the character and nature of Jesus is to have people like you around me. Because in and of myself, I will fall utterly and completely short. Whatever gifts and talents and abilities I bring to the table, they're just simply completely and utterly insufficient. But when I'm surrounded by other people in a community of faith, suddenly things begin to happen that were absolutely impossible apart from one another. Now, wouldn't you say that's true? Now, if that's true then wouldn't it also be true that it would only make sense that if, if Jesus is this irresistible, polarizing character, that people who seem to be the most hurt or the most needy can't seem to get enough of, and 
We are individually called to be as hands and feet. And the only chance we have to do that is to do that together. So together we form the, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church of Christ. Then wouldn't it make sense that Sundays would be the greatest day of the whole week? That, that the church would be the most irresistible place on the planet? That wouldn't it just make sense that people who were broken and hurting would just flock to the church. Just barrel in there. And I mean, maybe we could say, well, you know, obviously every church isn't going to do the job of that that they ought to do. That there's going to be various, you know, with all the, the different churches, there's going to be various degrees of success in maybe Jesus-likeness. But it would only stand to reason that a group of people who were even marginally reflecting Christ would be irresistible to the people around them. And not only that, it would certainly be irresistible to the people within, would it not? That, that on Saturday afternoon, if you got an opportunity to go to the lake on Sunday morning or, you know, play in a tournament or whatever the case may be. That it, Well, of course, nothing would be better than being in church. That ever since church let out the last time, I've been looking forward to the next time. Isn't that just how it would seem that it ought to be? It seems that way to me. In fact, it is that way to me. That I... I look forward to Sunday as soon as Monday morning comes. I start looking forward to the next Sunday. I start looking forward to the next Wednesday. I'm always looking forward. But just some things that I think anyone with any level of understanding could read the Bible and come to those simple conclusions. Now let's pray and ask God to help us and then we'll study from 2 Samuel 23. Father, we stand before your word. This word is perfect, inerrant in every way. It's your word breathed from your mouth intended for us. God, there's no doubt it's perfectly suited for our ears right now. And so God, what we pray is that we would not hinder your word this morning in our own hearts. We need you to help us. Will you give us ears to hear? And hearts to receive that we might glorify you through the receiving of this precious word today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 2 Samuel 23. Let's begin reading in verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men of David. Josheb, Bashabeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was also called Adino, the Esnite, because he had killed 800 men at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ashahite, one of the three mighty men of David, when they uh, defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. Verse 11, and after him there was Shammah, the son of Aji, the Hararite, 
The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines. But he stationed himself in the middle of the field and he defended it. And he killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Then three of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time and came to David in the cave at Adullam. And the troops of the Philistines had encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was with them in the stronghold, and a garrison of Philistines was with them in Bethlehem. And David said with a longing voice, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three men, the mighty men, broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and then they took it and they brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. Now here's what I want us to think about this morning. I'm going to give you a little bit of context about what's going on. It's hard when you're in an Old Testament narrative and you just jump into something like this. But let's get some context. The Bible teaches us a lot about David. One of the things the Bible says about David is that he's a man who had a heart after God. But if you study the life of David in Scripture, what you find is that this heart that he developed for God was a heart that was born out of a journey of sanctification. The Bible sort of chronicles the life of David. We get to see his sanctification. We get to see all the good times and the bad times, the way God uses him in a multitude of different ways in order to grow him into the man that he ultimately becomes. The Bible shows us that of all the things that God used to grow David, one of the key elements, if not the key element, that God used to create the heart in David that God desired to create was community. You see, the, tr the simple truth about this is, is that None of us is ever going to have the heart for God that he desires for us to have without community. It's impossible. And so the question I want us to explore this morning is what kind of community are we talking about? Because when I say that God used community or I say that God's going to use community in our lives, we have a lot of different opinions and ideas about what this community is. What does it look like? What do we do when we're together? What defines the kind of community that God uses to sanctify us? Well, I think that this passage will give us a very clear understanding of what God used in David's life and how he desires to use community in our lives. Now, if you remember, God made Saul king of Israel. The children of Israel decided that they wanted a king. Everyone around them had a king. God had uh, provided for them with his own uh, leadership, but they decided they wanted a king, so God made Saul king. Saul did okay for a little while. He was the first king, but it didn't take long before he began to stray from God and things went awry. Meanwhile, God anoints this shepherd boy, David, to be king. 
The only problem is, is that the timing seems, seems to be a little bit off. David is anointed to be the king when King Saul is still the king, which creates quite a problem. Now, of course, God in his sovereignty knows exactly what he's doing. There's no mistake, but for you and for me, it seems like things are a little strange. It puts David in a very precarious situation because now he's anointed to be king, yet there is a king. The one who has all the power is the one that he's supposed to supplant, and that's really a a treacherous situation, and that's exactly what God uses to mold and shape David into the man that he desires for him to be. So David knows that he won't be king until Saul dies. So that's sort of awkward. He's just sort of waiting around for you to die. And David, uh, meanwhile, he kills Goliath, and so he becomes very famous and widely known, and people are sort of revering him as this great warrior to make things more complicated. And after that event... Saul brings David into his inner circle. David lives at the palace, becomes best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. So all of these awkward things are happening. Meanwhile, he's anointed to be king. He lives in the palace with the king. It doesn't take long for jealousy to break out and for trouble to come. And then Saul tries to kill David a few times. And pretty soon, David has to flee into the wilderness, and he's running for his life. Now, don't you know that if it's you or it's me, the whole time we're thinking to ourselves, Gee, God, thanks so much for this. You know, I'm so glad that, you know, I was perfectly content out there just tending to the sheep, and you show up and want me to be king. That wasn't my idea. And, you know, it seemed like, you know, Saul could have had a heart attack that afternoon. That would have been better, but no, that doesn't happen. And now all these other complicated things have happened, and now he's trying to kill me, and now basically I'm a man on the run in my own country among my own people, and... Everybody's trying to hunt me down. I mean, even people who, you know, might side with David are not going to go against the king because they know that's certain death. So everywhere David goes, he's recognizable. And everywhere David goes, there are uh, soldiers of Saul's that are saying, has anybody seen David? So people are going to definitely be enticed into telling you, well, yeah, we saw him, he passed through going this way. And so basically, he was a man who was literally a fugitive. He was fleeing for his life all over the country and running in and out of other countries, which were enemy territory, but finding refuge in enemy territory and then coming back and forth across the borders. I mean, it's a really a crazy sequence of events. The most powerful man in the world is seeking to kill you All of this mess is happening in your life because of something that God has done. And David finds himself utterly and completely alone, hiding out in the wilderness. The very guy who killed Goliath is now hunkered down in a cave, terrified and alone and bewildered. And we get a glimpse into sort of the The fact that David's heart is not where it ultimately will be. It's not where God is going to take it. We have Psalm 142, which is a psalm of David. It will come up on the screen. It's a prayer that David prayed when he was in the cave, alone, afraid. He says, verse 1, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord I make my supplication. 
I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. In my way, in the way in which I walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who even acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. There's the words of a broken man, alone in a cave, acknowledging the fact that God is the one who's put him in this situation and saying, I'm not really sure if God even knows the problems that I'm facing, and here I am all alone. Lord, you knew my path, and, let, and, and yet you set me, and here I am. And where there's no one here to care for me. No one cares for my soul. And what does God do in response to this prayer in this cave? How does God respond to his man who's anointed to be king, who can't possibly see what God is going to do in his future? But God knows. And he seems, he seems, even to you and me who know the whole story, at this point, a, a million miles away from that. I mean, how, how is this guy who is just completely alone, bewildered, and just outdone by life totally? He sounds to me like he's on the brink of just giving up. So what is God going to do? Well, in 1 Samuel 22, these verses will come up on the screen. I'm just going to read two verses. You don't need to turn there. This is what the Bible says about this moment in the cave that we read about in Psalm 142. David, therefore, departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. In other words, David is in this cave in Adullam alone, and he's by himself, and he's defeated. And he cries out to the Lord, God, there's no one here beside me. No one cares for my soul. And God then dispatches people to the cave. That the response to David's sorrow and loneliness is community. But who does he send to the cave? Who does he send to surround David? The very next verse, verse 2 says, And everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, and everyone who is discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. Hmm. Wouldn't you think that if you were God and This was your man, David, that you'd anointed to be king, that he's about to embark on his final journey before he becomes king, that he's alone in a cave and needs some encouragement, and that you're trying to sanctify him, train him, prepare him, ready him for the task at hand, that wouldn't it make sense to you that what you would do or what I would do is send some retired kings to help him and train him and prepare him to be a king? 
or maybe some people with some political experience to teach them about how to run a kingdom. Or well, you'd send some people who had some very high-level knowledge and that they'd be able to impart to this young man who's hiding in a cave so that he would be able to go to the Harvard School of Kingdom leadership, if you will. Uh, I mean, it seems to me like if you had all the resources in all the universe, you would send the brightest and the best to your young man that you're about to put in a position to lead your people, to be one of the greatest, most acknowledged people in all of the Bible. And God does the exact opposite. The Bible tells us that God responds to David's prayer of loneliness and despair by sending to him all the people who were in distress, all the people who were in debt, and all the people who were discontented. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a real good gathering to me. That sounds like a bunch of losers. And I started thinking about this. Here's David in the cave, all alone, defeated, bewildered. God sends community to him, and he sends these rejects to prepare him to usher in this new kingdom. Then I think Jesus comes on the scene. He's ushering in a new kingdom. And the king arrives on the scene, and the first thing the king does is he assembles a community. And who does he assemble a community of? Tax collectors and fishermen. He doesn't get any generals from the army. He doesn't get any politicians or anybody who's got any credibility or nothing like that. He surrounds Jesus with the same kind of people he surrounds David with. So maybe there's something for us to learn this morning about this community that God puts around David. The first thing I want you to know about this community is it's a, a welcoming community. See, God's community is a welcoming community. Notice what it says in verse 2. It says, and anyone who is in distress, anyone who is in debt, and anyone who is discontented gathered to him. So... There's nobody with really any skill that I can see. There's nobody with any clout, certainly. They're all broke. Their credit cards are maxed out. They're, sounds to me like it's a bunch of people that have been beaten up by life is what it sounds like. The, so I started doing a word study on this verse, and it got worse. The word distress means psychological suffering. That means there's a bunch of nutcases came in there. They were emotionally unstable people. David prays, God, I'm alone. I'm about to be king. I need some help. So he sends the emotionally unstable. Now, I could say something about that right now, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to let it's just inferred in that pause. Okay? So then I looked at the word discontented. I thought, now what does that word mean? I mean, you know, what are they discontented about? Well, the Hebrew word is mara. It means bitter in soul. I'm like, oh. So he sent the psychologically unstable and the bitter people to him. Another pause just momentarily. 
I thought about when we studied through the book of Ruth. Remember the story, Naomi and her family go to the country of Moab, her and her husband and two sons, to start a new life, to get away from the famine. And then her husband dies, and she's a widow, but she's still got her two sons, and then they marry, and then 10 years later, both of her sons die. And so there she is alone in Moab, and so she heads back home. And remember what the Bible says when she walks back into Bethlehem, what all the people say, oh, look who it is, it's Naomi. And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. That's that word, discontented. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Remember, she said, when I went away, I was full, but the Lord has brought me home again empty. So he sends David, the emotionally unstable and the bitter, discontented people, and they gather around David to form some kind of community in this cave of Adullam. I started thinking to myself, what was that like? Apparently, this was a, an enormous complex cave where David, you know, goes multiple times in his life and he stores up provisions in there and all sorts of things. And I mean, if you think about it, there's, there's got to be a ton of people in there. And you've got, you've got broke people, emotionally unstable people, and bitter people all slammed in this cave. And David, he's got to be thinking, man, I will never, ever pray again. <laughs> ever. I mean, did you misunderstand me? This is, this is what you send me? It's like the... Uh, you remember in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer when he went to the island of misfit toys where all the toys were like backwards and broken and had the train with the square wheels and all that. Remember that? All the toys where no kid would have. They, that, that, you know, and, and that, that's what this cave must have been like. It was the cave full of misfit people. And God assembles them in this particular cave of Adullam. I wonder what the word Adullam means. Did any of you look that up? I didn't have time this week. I was kind of busy. It means refuge. He assembled this group of people around David in this cave named Refuge. Somebody said a few moments ago when I was talking about the cave, they said it sounds a little bit like our church. I said, yeah, it does. I think that's by God's design, don't you? See, the church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. The church was never meant to be a place that was appealing to people who had it all together. God never built community out of all the people who 
didn't have any problems. You see, he built the same community around David that he's built around you and me. That the church, when it's functioning correctly, is irresistible, but it's not irresistible to everyone. It's only irresistible to the emotionally unstable, to the broke, and to the bitter. To which I say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Now, I want you to notice something else about what the Bible says. It says, and everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, and everyone who is discontented. That you see, this welcoming community that God creates, it's, it's open to everyone who's got problems. If you got problems, you're in. But now if you're, if you're good, if you've got it all together, then it's not for you. You see? But everyone who's got these problems, they're all in the community. You don't have to meet any other qualification except for you're a mess. 1 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul says to the very messy church at Corinth, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. No. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. You see, to all the people... As David's in that cave praying that prayer, all the people who were tired of living in Saul's world, all the people who the kingdom really didn't have a place for them, all the people where, who had realized that the advantages of living in that kingdom were only for a select few who met the criteria, who were born in the right family, who had all the right uh, training or giftedness or whatever the case may be all those people who didn't fit into that system who'd been rejected who'd failed whose past had created situations that had now rolled over into their present all those people who had chased the carrots of the world realized that it only led them further into destruction all the people who were brokenhearted and emotionally spent, the wounded, the bitter, and the broken, God says to all of them, Hey, come join us in Adullam. Come up to the refuge and gather around David. Now, David doesn't know what's about to happen, and you don't know what's about to happen, but God knows, and so he brings them all together. And notice that the same person who one minute says, there's not one person who cares for my soul. The next thing we read, the Bible says David became captain over all of them. He went from nobody to basically having his own army. Surrounded by these ones who would later become to be known as his mighty men. You see, God 
is about creating new communities. You see that? But they're, they're welcoming communities. There's, and within this community, there's plenty of room for you. And the only criteria is, is that you're, you're weak and beggarly in some way. You see, if you're, if you're high and mighty, well, then this kingdom's not for you. And he assembles all of these people around David who becomes their new king. And he brings people like you and me into a church. And he gets us around our new king. And he's always about making community because it's within the confines of this community that people become what God intends for them to be. And just because we get to look down and see from you know 10,000 feet the story unfold for David doesn't mean that it's any different for you and me. It's the exact same way that God desires to sanctify you and me. You see, the, the community of God should always be a community where people feel like they belong before they believe. You understand what I just said? Because it's very important. See, these people go up to the cave. Now, they know they're going up to the cave to gather around Jesus. I mean, to gather around David. But there's a lot of uncertainty in the cave, undoubtedly. I mean, I can just read between the lines and figure that out. I mean, there's no specific directive. So they go up there and they gather around him. And it's then over a period of time that they sort of become these mighty men and become these people that surround David and this bond builds. It's not this, they don't just show up, hey, we're the mighty men, we're here for you. People come into church and they're, they're far from God. They're not sure who God is. They're not sure even how to get to God. They're not even sure that they can get to God. And what a church has to do is understand that people, as they come into church, they, they belong before they believe. That they're part of who we are. That we're, we don't have it all together. That we're not perfect. That when a broken person comes in our doors, there's absolutely nothing for them to feel threatened by. It's not as if any of us is not fully aware, aware of what it's like to live in this world and feel broken. So it's a welcoming community. Secondly, it's a growing community. The reason it's a welcoming community is because God's intention is for it to be a growing community. And I don't necessarily just mean numerically growing. I mean that it's growing in sanctification. You see, the way this works is, is, is through grace. Grace welcomes. Grace doesn't discriminate. Grace, this unmerited favor that God bestows upon those who would follow him, is open to whoever it is that will come, whoever, anyone, anyone who's in debt, anyone who's discontented, anyone.
But a lot of people walk into a lot of churches today, and I don't think there's grace there. And I think the reason is because there's a lot of people that have a lot of misconceptions about grace. A lot of people think grace, left unbridled, creates license. That if you just tell people what the Bible says about grace, man, they're just going to go out there and sin like crazy. See, there's a lot of people that either practice a form of grace that's not grace, which says that you can do whatever you want and that God doesn't care about your behavior, or they're afraid of grace, and so they try to legislate or mitigate the grace so that they keep it in a box so that they only give it out in little portions so that people will behave and do what they're supposed to do. The problem with all that is it's just not in the Bible. The Bible says the exact opposite of that. The Scripture teaches that grace is the only lasting and real motivator for growth. That the, the fuel of sanctification is grace. The very fact that God invited a bunch of broken people together, anyone who is broken is welcome to come in. The grace of God that comes pouring out from the throne of mercy upon their life is what compels them to go forward. Any person who says that they understand grace and yet walks in reckless sin has no concept of what grace actually is. You see, the group of people that I've been describing to you from 1 Samuel chapter 22, you've already figured this out, is the group of people that I introduced you to in the beginning from 2 Samuel chapter 23. It's the same cave, different day. That times have gone forward. That when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 23, David is king. And so... When we read that there he is in the same cave of Adullam and the Philistines have a stronghold in Bethlehem and there's a garrison up by the gate and David's head is down and he says, oh, that I would just have a drink of water from the well that's by the gate. The men that hear that the men that respond to the desire of his heart, the men that hear their leader say that are the same men that were broken and discontented in 1 Samuel chapter 22. That's where the mighty men of David came from. Except now, this is a totally transformed group. That community, somehow, some way, this bunch of misfits... has become this elite fighting machine. You see, David is teaching us so many lessons with every moment of his life, the Bible tells us. One of those is that David becomes king. And the tendency would be to just wipe the sweat off your brow and say, Phew. 
You know, Saul's dead. That's over with. Now I'm king. I can finally lead. Things are going to be better. Things are going to be fine. And what do you think the first thing that happens to him when he's king? He's been running from Saul, living in caves as a fugitive. He finally becomes king, and the Philistines come crashing in and attack him. And not only that, it's during harvest. How would you like to be a new king, new on the job? It's harvest time. The Philistines show up. They're setting up strongholds everywhere. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out if they take the harvest, they ain't no Walmart. (laughs) We're going to get hungry. This is a bad situation. But see, he knows of this cave that he's been in before. And the Bible doesn't say that he thinks to himself, maybe I'll go back to the place where God's worked in my life so greatly before. Isn't it interesting that as sure as I am that when God first moved those people around him, he thought, dear God, what have you done to me now? But after time, After community had sort of soaked in and they had grown together. Then when he becomes king and trouble comes, he goes back to the same place. Because he realized that what seemed like a disaster when God put all these rebels around him was one of the greatest things God ever did in his life. And so he goes right back to the refuge. And now, how, how has this community transformed? Not just David, but the people who were the discontented, you know, the bitter, broke, emotionally unstable people. What does 2 Samuel 23 tell us about them? Well, the first thing I want you to see is that they had grown in courage. You see, it's harvest time. The Philistines are in a position of power. They, they've got the, they're in the, if you're a military strategist, you could read this and understand that things are not looking good for, for David at the moment. And yet, living in this, uh, you know, this cave, hiding out, these men have extraordinary courage. The Bible says that uh, as it's describing these mighty men, It says that the Lord brought about great victory in their lives, both in verse 10, the end of verse 10, then in verse 12 when it's talking about Shammah standing in the field of beans. The Lord brought about a great victory. Hmm. You know, it sounds like what the Lord said to Joshua when he said, don't be afraid, but be of great courage because I'll never leave you or forsake you. In other words, these men had experienced the victory of God in their life. That's how they'd gotten their names. That's what the Bible's telling us. That's who they are. They're named this because they had been great warriors. They had had great successes in the past. Remember the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 when he's talking about the armor of God, the way he leads into that? He says, finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That before we ever get to the armor of God, you got to be strong in Him and the power of His might. Then, Paul says, put the whole armor of God on that you may stand against the wiles of the devil. You see, these, these mighty men 
over the course of time, since the first time they were together in the cave of Adullam until this time, they had seen David grow as a man who trusted God. They had seen God work mightily, not only in David's life, but in their own life. They had had great victories, and they were acknowledging that the victories were not theirs, but that God had gave them the victory. I mean, let's face it. The first guy with the real crazy name that nobody can say, he killed 800 people by himself. The second guy fought so long that his hand was stuck to the sword. The third guy stood in a bean field with no one else around him. When everyone else went and hid, and he slayed all the Philistines, and in all three examples, the Bible says, the Lord brought great victory. So these people had grown in community, in extraordinary courage. How? From living with each other and together in community, seeing God work in one another's lives. It wasn't just them sitting around watching God work in David's eye, in David's life. That's what you've got to see. If you think the disciples didn't see God working in their life, and all they did was examine the work of God in Jesus' life, you are sorely mistaken. It was in the, in the community as they saw God doing extraordinary things before them and in their very own lives that he used these simple fishermen and tax collectors to transform the whole world in the same way he used these broke and bitter, confused people to become these mighty warriors through community so they grew in this amazing courage hmm you know so I started thinking about this how have I grown in courage personally and I just stopped and I reflected over these years and I thought about how I do things all the time today that would have literally scared me to death 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 3 years ago, even 1 year ago. And you know what motivates me and what helps me on a regular basis overcome my fears? is all of the things that I've seen God do in the lives in this room. That even when I don't have a personal experience with God to help me in my situation, one of you always does. You see, if I didn't know you, if you weren't part of my life, I would be all of those areas would be vacant for me. I wouldn't, have any, I wouldn't have any human experiential context for those things. See, because we know these great promises from Scripture, but I think we overlook the context in which they're spoken. For example, when Jesus says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, what is he talking about the gates of hell not prevailing against? The community. He's not saying, Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail against you personally, you by yourself individually. He's saying 
the church collectively, that corporately in community, hell ain't got a chance. That's what makes our courage grow. The second thing I see that's transformed in this community is their mutual love. They have this extraordinary love and affection for one another that must have come from their time together. I mean, Jesus said in John chapter 13 that the world will know we're we're his disciples by the way we love one another. Clearly, the way they love each other tells me that they've been transformed. So David... Is he thirsty? Have you, ever, have you ever read this narrative? Maybe as you're reading through the Bible or having a quiet time and just thought, man, that's rude. First of all, who is in a cave as the king under siege by the enemy and starts whining about water from a well? See, David's from Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is in the stronghold right now of the enemy, and he's the new king. And what he's saying is, he's saying, Oh God, if I could just have a drink from that well, meaning that in order for me to have a drink from that well, it would indicate that everything is fine, that we had regained Bethlehem, that we had defeated our enemy, that we were in control of the city again, that I would be able to drink from that well, that well I've always drank from. Tell me it's not gone forever and that the Philistines are going to, this is how it's going to end after everything I've been through. That's sort of the, the prayer. This doesn't have anything to do with being thirsty. Meanwhile, these three men who are hovering around close to David overhear what he says. He didn't say this to them. He just said it. They overhear what he says Undoubtedly come over to a huddle and say, hey, he wants some water from the well. We'll get it. Let's go get it. Now, the cave of Adullam is 12 miles from Bethlehem. The gate into Bethlehem is up on a hill. A garrison is standing at the gate, which is at minimum 20 men. Could be more, but at minimum 20 to be a garrison. These three men walk through enemy territory 12 miles. They battle their way all the way up the hill, through the gate, go to the well, take this skin that they've carried, fill it with water, and then have to battle their way back out and all the way down and back to David. When they get back to David, who's still sitting there, they hand him this water thinking, you wanted water? Here you go. David then takes the water and says, I can't drink this, and pours it out. To which if I'm one of them mighty men, this is fixing to go really bad. (laughs) At this point, I say, dude, I killed 800 people by myself. I I wouldn't spill that water if I was you. This could go way bad. Do you have any idea what I just went through to get you that water? The Bible says he pours it out before the Lord. Whoa, whoa. Now, now let's think about this for a second. Before we get too far, I just want you to back up and go, what kind of men would do that? Would hear 
someone they loved say, I wish I had some water from the gate. And go through all of that to bring them what they need. That shows me that they deeply, extraordinarily loved David. They cared so much for David that they're like, okay, let's do it. That's not just courage, that's love. Thirdly, they grew in authentic worship. See, not only did they grow courageous because they acknowledged God's work in their lives, not only do they clearly love each other in a way that's even hard for us to, to comprehend, that they would risk their lives to do these things, but then David pours out the water. I mean, the Bible says that nevertheless he wouldn't drink it and he poured it out to the Lord. Well, what is this? David takes this water. He's not ungrateful for what these men have done. He is acknowledging that what these men have done is so extraordinary that he pours it out as a drink offering before the Lord. He would like nothing more than to drink it. But what these men have done is impossible in their human strength and ability. And David is acknowledging that the only way they were able to fight all the way up that hill, get water out of that well, and then fight all the way back down and bring me this water is God must have done that. And if God did that, I'm going to give this back to the Lord as a drink offering and worship Him. This is a moment of extraordinary worship. Now you should think to yourself right now, Man, Pastor, that's amazing. What a great story. That's so moving. That's so wonderful. But really, what does that have to do with me? What does it have to do with me? I think it has everything to do with you. I think that this morning, you're sitting in a place where week in and week out, Together, we get to see these same principles played out right before us. And if we're not careful, we miss how it happens. A couple of weeks ago, I had a group of folks stand up here, as I always do. We're about to go on a mission trip, as we always do. And as we always do, I, my fear in my heart is that, you know, it's just another mission trip. My fear in my heart is that, that some of you would say, well, you know what, if we pray, if, if, I, if I prayed every day for all the people from my church that were on a mission trip, I would have to pray every day all summer long. Yeah, you would. You would. That's the goal. But I said that the way this community had been transformed was in courage and love and worship. Now, I want to ask you a question. When we put Pastor Rod and a group of ladies on an airplane to go to Moldova, I mean, what husband is going to put their wife on an airplane to go to Moldova? Who does that? You don't know anybody in Moldova. Are you crazy? a matter of fact, what are you even doing going to Moldova in the first place? Is anybody thinking that 
if it weren't for community, that on their own, any of these ladies would ever go to Moldova. That somehow, just in the natural course of life, do you know anybody that's not a Christian that just got on a plane and went to Moldova? Do you know any husbands that just put their wife on a plane and said, why don't you go to Moldova and see if you can find somebody in need? Or could it be that in the course of time, through community, together, people grow in extraordinary courage and love, mutual love, and worship? And then right before our very eyes, we see what was once, no offense, a band of rejects. Do something extraordinary. Well, I don't know. You watch. You tell me. 